It's really overwhelming when you think about, isn't it? Heaven's perfect mystery. The king of all things has sent for me. Me. You know, in the Bible, there's only one time. And the whole thing, it's a big book. I mean, just, I mean, one time, all these pages. And the only time that God ever sings. We're told that he's singing. It's when he sings over you. When he sings over his people. I mean, it's really overwhelming. What, what makes the creator of the universe sing? It's when he sees, when he sees the, the trophies of his grace and the monuments of his mercy in, in you. It's unbelievable. If God is singing today, he's singing over you. And that really is incredible. Now, why is he singing over you? Is it because we're so lovely and worthy? No. This is the amazing thing about, this is the amazing thing about God's love, is that God's love isn't like ours, where we look out and we, our love lands on things that we find lovely, that look lovely to us, that appeal to us. We look out and we see things that are beautiful or pretty or lovely that draws our love out because they're beautiful and lovely. And God's love isn't like that. God looks at the unlovely and that's what draws his heart out to us. God's love doesn't find loveliness. God's love makes things lovely. And that's why he makes us, by his love, the objects of his joy. It's absolutely staggering. The king of all things has sent for me and called me by name. The glorious truth. Will you, will you pray with me? Father, it's just it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to come out of a busy week and, and our minds and lives and days and, and work and everything's just been in a thousand different directions. And that's just the world we live in. It's busy, it's loud, it's noisy, it's distracting, it's disorienting. And there's a million things we have to think about and 10,000 things we've got to do and it's just so easy to get caught up in the, in the race and to just have your voice drown out or be drowned out. But if we would just calm our hearts today and turn down the, all the other radios of this life, turn down the other music that's playing and just listen with the, listen with the ears to hear that you've given to us on the inside to tune in to the song you're singing and to hear your voice celebrating the accomplishment of your love in us. It's just staggering. And I pray, Lord, that this morning you just give us a little taste. Just give us a little taste of that love and just let it, just let it be so sweet and satisfying to us today. And speak your word of love to us and capture our hearts, and let it end our love affair with sin and the world and the stuff and the promises, the empty promises of this world. And may we lift our eyes up and set them upon our Savior and see His beauty 
and see it as so compelling and so captivating. Just give us a little taste of that and a little glimpse of that today as we continue to worship you through your scriptures. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading today. We are going to be in the Old Testament in the little book of Nahum. Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. I'll ask you if you'll please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. We're just going to read this one verse together. This is God's holy word for us, his people. The word of God says, Behold, upon the mountains... The feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is God's holy word for us today. Let's ask him to bless our time here. Father, we ask that you would take the reading of your word and also the preaching now of your word and write your truth upon our hearts and get great glory for yourself as we listen attentively and we seek to find all the riches you have for us today. Help us to take away the truth you want us to have, and may it mark our lives the rest of this week. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Over the past two weeks, as you know, as we've continued our series on biblical reformed worship, over the past two weeks we've been looking at how we as Christians ought to observe the Sabbath under the new covenant in obedience to the fourth commandment. And in, these, in the weeks leading up to these past two sermons, we had been zooming in closer and closer on the specifics of how to worship God biblically. That is to say, according to the regulative principle of worship. And then we zoomed out from the service of worship to the day of worship over the last two weeks. And we've talked about how you can make the most of your Sabbath observance during, or before, during, and after church. This morning, I want to zoom all the way out. All the way out from the day of worship to the year of worship. Today, I want to make a case for you. I want to make a case, as best I can, for the Christian year. For observing the seasons and occasions of the liturgical calendar. Now, you might think, ho-hum, why did I not skip today? Who needs that? Well, hold on a minute, because I want to spice it up a little. Okay, Preaching about calendars sounds awful. But wait a minute. There's a controversy, and everyone loves a controversy. In Reformed and Presbyterian circles, this is a controversial topic. Now, if you don't know, we're in a Presbyterian church, and we're in the Reformed tradition. 
And what that means is there's going to be a controversy over observing the church year and the the liturgical calendar. In Reformed and Presbyterian circles, many Reformed teachers and many Reformed churches think that we should have nothing to do with the liturgical calendar at all and should abolish the Christian year. Why? Well, they say, this is their number one argument, it violates the regulative principle. Now, I think that view is wrong, and I believe it's good to observe the Christian year, and I think I can make a decent case for it. So, I want to make that case this morning. So, first, we're going to look at what are we arguing about? What is the Christian year? And are there any benefits and blessings for observing it? Second, I will raise some Reformed objections to the Christian year, especially this one, that it violates the regulative principle. I've been harping on this principle for, what, two months, two and a half, three months, I mean, like 10, 10, 11 weeks or so. And if it turns out that violating the church, that practicing the church year violates that principle, then we shouldn't do it. So it's a major objection. So we'll look first at what is the Christian year. Second, we'll raise these Reformed objections. And then third, I'll make my case for the Christian year by answering those objections. So that's where we're going. Okay, number one, what is the Christian year? The Christian year is the cycle of liturgical seasons that determines the sacred days and events that we celebrate and commemorate in the life and worship of the church. I'll say that one more time. The Christian year is the cycle of liturgical seasons that determines the sacred days and events that we celebrate and commemorate in the life and worship of the church. Now, this Christian practice of the the liturgical year, the Christian practice imitates the Old Testament Jewish practice. The Old Testament liturgical calendar revolved around weekly Sabbath, that's Saturday, and the three major festivals of the Old Testament, which are Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. They're called the Feast of Passover, or the Festival of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, or Booths, sometimes it's called, depending on your translation. So the the Jewish year in the Old Testament revolves around Sabbath, weekly Sabbath, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, and then two high holy days, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And I think we're actually in Yom Kippur now. These days and events and the times in between them mark the seasons of the Jewish year from the Old Testament. The Christian year is modeled after this Jewish practice. Each season has its own set of themes and moods and symbols and colors and practices to be observed by churches in public worship and to be observed by individual Christians and families in their own lives and in their homes. And it's also similar to our civil calendar. I mean, we have, we have seasons on our regular old civil calendar. We have se- holiday seasons and we have Christmas and Easter and July 4th and Valentine's Day, and we commemorate certain people, like we have MLK Day and Columbus Day and President's Day and things like that. So we, all, we already do this anyways in the civil calendar, and the Christian year is similar. 
It's based on this Jewish model, and it's not so different from the civil calendar that we already observe anyways. So the Christian year, if that's what it is, how do you break it down? What's it like? And some of this, many of you will already be somewhat familiar with this because you've probably grown up with it or we do some of it already in this church. But let me just give you a quick breakdown of what the Christian year looks like. It's divided into seven seasons following the saving events of the life of Jesus. That's what it's based on. It follows the pattern of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And it includes a cycle of commemorations of great saints in the Bible and heroes in church history, things like that. So here are the seven seasons. The first one, Christian New Year, isn't January 1st. And let me back up for a second. This is for Western Christianity, the Christianity that comes out of European, Roman Catholic, Latin-based church history. That's where we come from. And then you have Eastern Christianity that's Greek and Syriac speaking and Coptic, which is just Egyptian with Greek letters. And you've got these other churches out in the East and they observe a different calendar and we'll put them to the side because that's not our tradition. So I'm just talking about in the West, there's going to be a lot of overlap, but there'll be some differences too. So we'll ignore those differences and just focus on the Western tradition here because that's where we are. The Christian New Year for Western Christians doesn't start on January 1st. That's the civil calendar. The Christian New Year this year starts November 27th. (laughs) Random, it changes every year. Because it's Advent. The Christian year starts with Advent. And Advent begins four Sundays before Christmas Day. Now, Christmas Day is not, it's the 25th, but what day of the week that is, is different. And he's got to back up four Sundays from Christmas Day. And that's where you count Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas Day. And this season of the Christian year begins with the theme of anticipation. During Advent, we are anticipating the coming of Christ. What we're doing is we're going back like we're in the Old Testament, and we're walking with those Old Testament saints, and we're anticipating with them the coming of Christ leading up to Christmas. Christmas Day. And we're also reminded that we too are waiting for the Savior to come a second time. So it's a way to get us into the reality that we are anticipating things. This is not the end of history. We're going somewhere. We are suspended between the first coming and second coming of Christ. And we're in, so Advent is sort of a parable for the whole period that we're in right now as a church. Before the second coming. Advent plugs us into all these realities. It's about anticipating the coming of Christ. And we have colors associated with it. You can see the colors up here. Right now they're green. But they'll be purple during Advent. And and the clue to what season we're in is you look at the calendar. But also what colors are up here will be a clue. So purple for Advent. All right, next season. We're not going in depth on these. Next season. Right after Advent is Christmas. And Christmas on our calendar is one day. Right? December 25th. But in the Christian year, it's 12 days. Now, you already know that because the 12 days of Christmas. Now, there, we don't have the Lord's a-leaping, but it's, it's 12 days. Christmas on the Christian calendar starts Christmas Day, December 25th, and it ends January 5th. And in that period, we are focused on the incarnation, and the color is white. We're focusing on, all right, Advent is over, the anticipation's done, the wait is over, Christ came in history, and we celebrate his birth and his incarnation, the coming of God's own Son in human flesh for our salvation. That's the Christmas season. 
The next day is Epiphany. That's the next season. January 6th is an Epiphany day, and, it's, and it lasts for approximately up to about 40 days before Easter. That's, that's sort of the cutoff. Epiphany season is from January 6th up to about 40 days before Easter. And in this season, Epiphany is about having like, oh, I just had an epiphany. I just realized something. Something was just revealed to me. And this is where we celebrate that in Christ's life, he is revealing himself. After he's born, he now is revealing himself and showing us who he is. And this follows the next stage in Jesus' life in the Gospels. Right? So you have the Magi who visit. That's an epiphany thing. I know we put it with Christmas, but it's connected. It's about epiphany. We have Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan, and God says, this is my son whom I love. That's a revelation. And it leads all the way up to the, tr- the transfiguration. Transfiguration Sunday is what marks the end of the epiphany season. And the color goes to white at that time. And that's another time where God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So this is a period of revelation, God revealing who Jesus is, Jesus walking through this period of his life. That's epiphany. The revelation of Jesus to the world. Next is Lent. Now, Lent starts about 40 days before Easter, and Lent doesn't include Sundays, so you don't count those as part of the 40 days. That's how the math works out. And, of course, the beginning of Lent is Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday up to the Saturday of Holy Week the day before Easter Sunday. And so during this time, we are focused on Christ's march to the cross. After the transfiguration, after the final revelation in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The next thing Jesus does is he says, and we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified. So we follow the next stage in Jesus' life, where we walk with him to the cross during Lent. And this is a time where we are focused on fasting and prayer and repentance and taking up our cross and following him, the color is purple. Crucifixion season. Next, after Easter, after Lent is Easter Sunday. And then Easter season, it's called Easter Tide sometimes. And Easter Tide lasts for seven weeks. It's 49 days. The next seven weeks, it's Easter. So again, for, for us, Easter is one day. But for the church year, it's, it's seven weeks. And during Lent, we sort of give up something for Lent. supposed to stop doing something you were doing and spend extra time with the Lord or or whatever. Easter's the opposite. Now, you're supposed to take up something that you weren't doing before. You give up something for Lent, and you take up something for Easter. And it mimics this death and resurrection pattern. You lay something down, it dies, and then something new emerges in its place for Easter. It rises. And it's this sort of little parable that we can mimic in our own lives that shows it's resurrection time. And the colors are white, and it's a time of of festival and joy. Fifty days after Easter is the day of Pentecost. And penta is the idea there. Five. The 50th day after Easter is Pentecost, and it lasts just one week to the following Sunday, which is Trinity Sunday. And during Pentecost, right, we're thinking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. We're thinking about God giving power to His church. We think about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we focus on the outpouring of God's power. The color goes to red. It's the most powerful liturgical color, and it only comes out twice a year. Once for Pentecost, 
and then once here in a moment. So the next season is ordinary time. Ordinary time sounds boring. (laughs) And maybe what you haven't noticed is, I mean, 50 days after Easter, we're kind of in June, thereabouts. So from November to June, everything happens from November to June. And from June to Advent, it's just green, and we kind of don't do anything. It's ordinary time. Uh, But the word ordinary doesn't mean normal time or boring time. Uh, ordinary has to do with the word ordinal, like an ordinal number, first, second, third, fourth. And it's, it's counting time. It's where you start counting. First week after Pentecost, second week after Pentecost, third week, fourth week, 27th week. And then there's a couple dozen weeks between Pentecost and the next Advent. And it's ordinary time because there's not a lot happening. There's not like a big event that we're experiencing because we've already gone through Christ's life His birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand, Trinity Sunday and all that. Well, what are we doing? Well, it's summertime. The color is green. Things are growing. This is the time of growing, growth of the church as the kingdom blooms and expands and the church grows and we grow in our sanctification. And as the weeks drag on, Advent is way, way out there. What we're doing is we're also reminding ourselves that we have a long road to walk until Christ returns. And so we are going through doing our kingdom work. The gospel's going out. The kingdom is growing. The church is growing. We're growing. We're bringing God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. It's, a, it's springtime. It's summertime. And then things grow cold before Advent. At least they used to, right? Things are supposed to start getting cold, October, November, and it's kind of wearing down. Things are turning brown, right? We expect that it's going, every, the history is going to come to a climax when Christ will have to return and finish the work that he started. And so this whole season just reminds us of where we are in the, in the history of redemption. And the last Sunday of ordinary time before Advent starts is Christ the King, where it's that Sunday where the king is finally here. And then the next Sunday, we start over. Anticipation. Advent starts again. So we start with anticipating the coming of Christ. We end with the hope of his second coming. And then we start over again with anticipation. And we just get into that rhythm. We get into that rhythm as people and as a church. And here are the benefits of that. That's a real quick overview. Here are the benefits and blessings from doing that. Number one is it shapes our lives around the life of Christ, the life of Jesus. Because as a church, throughout the year, we're walking through the stages of Jesus' life. So it's like, oh, we're in, we're in Revelation time between Epiphany and, and Lent. Or we're in crucifixion time. We're walking with Christ to the cross. We're fasting. We're repenting. And, oh, we're in ordinary time. We're looking, we're, we got kingdom work to do. We're being about the work of the kingdom and we're waiting for the king to come and take up his throne. And it helps us know where we are and it helps us shape our lives around the life of Jesus. That is a wonderful blessing. Second, it builds spiritual habits and Christian character. As you go through the practices of the, of the church year, you can build these habits, these spiritual habits, and build this character into yourself. I and mean, if, you, if every year you know, I'm going to spend the next 40 days practicing some fasting and some prayer, and I'm going to give some stuff up, that's only a blessing. 
that's a good thing to, to actually say, I'm on the calendar, we fast during this period, and we, and we focus on repenting on this period, and we're walking, we're taking up our cross and walking with Jesus. That's a good reminder. It builds spiritual habits and Christian character. Third, it teaches us the faith. As we go through the life of Jesus in the Gospels, it teaches us the Christian faith. The whole Christian faith is built into the cycle of the seasons, from the anticipation of Christ's coming all the way to his second coming. It helps us to have gospel-shaped worship each week because our worship is plugged into this big schedule. And it helps us to cover the whole Christian faith instead of harping on what we like most. (laughs) These are all wonderful benefits and blessings to observing the Christian year. Okay, that was a very fast overview. What's wrong with that? (laughs) Objection time. Objection time. These are objections that I hear from Reformed people, especially on Facebook. This is where it comes out. If you lurk around Facebook groups, you'll be in the dark corners and you'll see your fellow Reformed believers who are, you know, really, really upset about churches who do this stuff. So, what are the objections? Well, I've got a couple here. First objection, it's way too complicated. Way too complicated, way too fixed, way too formal. It just easily slides into cold, dead, rigid, stiff traditionalism. So who needs it? Objection two, it's not reformed enough. Not reformed enough. In other words, it's too Catholic. I hear that one constantly. Too Catholic, full of superstition. Here's a word people like to use, popish. It's popish. That's the word the reformers used, and and people who think they're reformers today still use it. Popish. It's too Catholic. It's superstitious. Not reformed enough. Objection three. It's not historical for the reformed tradition. It's not part of our history. It breaks with the history and tradition of of our reformed churches and our reformed forefathers. So they didn't do it. Do we think they're wrong? Should we go against what they said? A fourth objection. It's man-centered. It's man-centered to observe commemorations of saints in the Bible or in church history. It's man-centered. Focus it on people. Focus on Jesus. You don't follow these old dead people. Too man-centered. And then the last objection, the big one, it violates the, the regulative principle of worship. Now, here's the argument on this one. This is the, I'm, I'm going to sort of like quickly deal with the first four, and I want to finish by spending the the remainder of our time on that fifth one. It violates the regulative principle. What's the argument? It's, It's in a syllogism. It's two premises and a conclusion. Premise number one, we must worship according to God's commands. That's the regulative principle. We must worship according to God's commands, and only God's commands. Okay. Premise two, God has not commanded us to have a liturgical calendar or to observe the Christian year. Therefore, conclusion, we should not observe the Christian year. Isn't that simple? Only do what God commands. God didn't command the Christian year, so don't do the Christian year. Easy. Worship must be biblical. The Christian year is unbiblical, so the Christian year is invalid. That's a tough argument. So we got to deal with it. 
All right, what's the answer to these objections? Point three, a defense of the Christian year. What shall we say to these objections? Reply to objection one, that it's too complicated, too fixed, and too formal. I will grant that the full-blown, historic, high liturgy is more fixed and more formal than it needs to be. I will grant the objector that much. There is a level of complexity and detail about the liturgical calendar that strikes me as overly complicated. I think that's true. People who grew up with it won't think that. I didn't grow up with it, so to me it, it seems very overly tedious and complicated. So I fully acknowledge the risk of dead formalism and traditionalism sneaking into a church. Fully acknowledge it. But... I say to the objector, the liturgical calendar is not the same thing as a high liturgy. And I think the objection confuses those two things. Having a liturgical calendar is not the same as having a high liturgy. It is possible to observe a liturgical calendar and follow the cycle of the liturgical seasons without turning the worship service into a Roman Catholic Mass. Or a high Anglo-Catholic, like Church of England uh, service. Or a big formal Lutheran service. Lots of, lots of churches do this very high formal liturgy where there's vestments and incense and there's processions and big special books and, and there's very specific technical prayers you have to pray at very specific points and there's a lot of up and down and it's very, very detailed and it's all written out verbatim. It's very fixed and very formal and you just read the book and do it. And there's a lot of churches that have a very high liturgy like that, but that's not the same thing as observing the Christian year. Liturgical worship can be less complicated, less fixed, and more and less formal. Now, this does mean that some elements, some elements of the traditional liturgical calendar will be dropped, and that's fine. That's fine with me. What I'm arguing for is what I'm going to call liturgy light. Liturgy light. A revised or a reformed, wink, wink, simplified... Christian year that allows for more free worship and is less crowded and cluttered by all the details and tedium of the traditional high liturgies. So I'm trying to meet the objector halfway. Having a, the, observing the church year, the Christian year, isn't the same thing as having a high liturgy, so don't confuse the two things. Reply to objection two. It's not reformed enough. It's too Catholic. I would say it is true that Roman Catholicism of the Middle Ages attached special merit to observing the customs and practices of the Christian year. If you don't observe the church's liturgical practices, if you don't fast during Lent, for example, then you are sinning against God. But if you do these things during Lent... You're gaining extra merit with God. Good works that contribute to your right standing with God and that have a place in your salvation. Now that's medieval Catholicism. Whether or not the Catholic Church thinks that today is not the issue. We're talking about back then. That's where the reformers started. This objection is you're not reformed enough. Well, that's where Catholicism was in the Middle Ages at the time of the Reformation. 
And these things were recognized right away by the reformers as superstitions that contradicted the gospel. And they insisted, good works do not save. Fasting during Lent isn't how you get saved. And it doesn't gain extra brownie points on the day of judgment that help you get into eternal life. That's not how it works. And if you don't practice these things, you're not violating God's commandments because God nowhere said fast during Lent. So, it's, so they recognize this problem. They recognized it very clearly. Their criticisms were accurate, which is why they sought to purge these, superstition, these superstitious practices from the church's worship in the Reformation. But there are two ways to purge. One is to keep the practices but purify them, and the other is to eliminate the practices altogether. So it's like saying, if you have a broken foot, there's two ways to fix it. We can put a cast on it, or we can cut it off. No more broken foot. Either way. Fix or cut off. What would you prefer? (laughs) Now, lots of Reformed people said, amputate that thing. Cut it out. Get rid of it. It's full of gangrene and cancer and can't be fixed and can't be healed. And it's just going to rot. So get rid of it. And other reformers said, no, we can keep some stuff and purify it somewhat. Get rid of the stuff that contradicts the gospel. But some of these practices, not all of them, but some of this stuff is, can be salvaged. It can still be done in a healthy, biblical way that helps us to grow and is, in, and is consistent with the gospel. A good practice that has been corrupted doesn't necessarily need to be eliminated. It just needs to be fixed and purified by the gospel. So take Lent, for example. Fasting during Lent. Fasting is good. We're supposed to fast. We're told to fast. Now, we're not, we're not told fast during Lent because there's no Lent in the Bible. But fasting isn't bad. It's not sinful to fast and to do it on a certain day. Or during a certain period, that's not a sin. Fasting is good, but it doesn't merit salvation either. (laughs) So we need to fix that. Fasting is good, but it doesn't save you. If you can figure out that balance, we can keep fasting. But if you can't tell the difference, then you should stop fasting. That's how the reformers would have approached that. Lent just needs to be purified. In the Reformation and shortly after, 1500s and 1600s, because people had been in Catholicism and under that system for centuries, it was very hard, very hard to unlearn some of this stuff. To us today, it's like, of course, fasting doesn't save you, duh, duh, McFly. But they, they had been told that and believed that for a long time. So... It was hard to unlearn some of this stuff. So one of the ways that the reformers did this was to say, well, let's just stop doing that. Just stop fasting. There's no Lent. Lent doesn't exist. It's not real. And just stop doing it. Just to, un- to help people unlearn something that they had been taught that was wrong. But that doesn't have to be permanent. That doesn't have to be permanent. We can reintroduce things now that that danger is no longer there. So is it, it's not Reformed enough. It's too Catholic. Not everything that's Catholic is bad. Catholics believe in the Trinity. Should we stop believing the Trinity because it's Catholic? 
Now, we got, we got to get over the phobia of it's Catholic. Some Catholic things we don't do. Obviously, we're Protestant. But 85% of the other stuff you probably wouldn't find objectionable. So let's get over the it's too Catholic objection. Objection number three. Objection three is that it's, it breaks the tradition of the Reformed Church. Well, we kinda, we're kind of already talking about that now, aren't we? The Puritans and the Scottish Presbyterians, which is where Presbyterianism comes from, the English Puritans and the Scottish Presbyterians were much more committed to elimination than purification. They wanted to amputate, not heal. Purity to them could only be achieved by getting rid of anything that looked or felt Catholic. And the American Presbyterians mostly followed the same approach. So I grant that that's the tradition of the Reformed churches. For the most part, we haven't practiced the church year. I grant that following the Christian year is out of step in some ways with, the, with our Reformed tradition. But my response to that is, so... Which is not a good answer, so let me say more. Uh, I, I don't, that's not a good enough reason for me. Well, so-and-so didn't do it, and we like so-and-so's theology. Well, I like so-and-so's theology, but that doesn't mean he's right about everything. It's not, a good enough, it's not a good enough reason not to do the Christian year. Let me give you two reasons why. Number one, we said the Apostles' Creed today. And in the Apostles' Creed, we all said... I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, it's a lowercase c. None of us are saying we believe in the Pope and we believe in the Roman Catholic Church. It's lowercase c, which just simply means universal. It comes from a Greek phrase that means according to the whole. According to the whole or on the whole means universal. So we just said we believe in the universal church, the Holy Catholic Church. We didn't say we believe in the holy Protestant reformers <laughs> or the holy Presbyterian church because we understand that we're part of something bigger than us. We're plugged into something that's way older than Presbyterianism. We're part of a 2,000-year-old church, and God has been working in His church for this whole time. Now, have things gone off the rails? You better believe it. Presbyterians have gone off the rails. You better believe it. But we believe in this bigger thing, and there's a movement today that's called Reformed Catholicity. There's actually a book with that title. I recommend it. Reformed Catholicity is this movement that says, let's not be so narrow focused on our own little tradition as though we finally figured out the Bible and theology and nobody else has ever had anything worth saying. And let's plug ourselves back in and say, there's stuff in the early church and the church fathers. There's stuff in the medieval theologians and saints. There's stuff in other Protestant traditions. There's other churches that have something that we can recover and that we can retain or we can retrieve. It's a retrieval movement to say, let's look back out across the Catholic tradition, again, lowercase c, and let's see what there is for us out there. And one of the things that can unite us with the rest of the church is just by doing these simple things of observing a Christian year. We can actually feel ourselves connected to other Christians and not just be us few and not you. We're going to be in heaven and 
Or we have it all and you don't have anything to offer and, and it, we got to get out of that. Now, I understand why the reformers and Puritans did what they did. In their context, I don't blame them. And in fact, I probably would have agreed with them. But we don't live in the 1600s anymore. And it's okay to plug yourself back into the church Catholic. Those fears and concerns are no longer the same threat today as they were back then. Now, they could become that threat again if we're not careful. So, of course, we've got to be careful. We don't just open the door and let everything in. But I don't think it's a good enough objection to say, well, the Reformers never did it, so we shouldn't either. don't think that carries the day. I reply to Objection 4. Objection 4 said, it's just man-centered to observe feast days. It's man-centered to think about saints. It's man-centered to remember the heroes of the Bible and the heroes of church history. It takes away from having the focus on God and takes glory away from God and all this. So that's the objection. And my simple answer to this is, no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it's not. And I'll give you a verse. Hebrews thirteen seven says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's Hebrews 13, 7 and 8. And in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11, 1 to the end, Hebrews 11, the whole chapter, it's called the Hall of Faith because all of these great saints from the Old Testament are brought up and held up as examples. And then in Hebrews 12, 1, it says, since we have this great cloud of witnesses, let's run our race. Well, you, you can't consider that cloud of witnesses if you don't know who they are or you're not allowed to learn about them or hear about them or you ignore them. No, we need our great cloud of witnesses. God has done amazing things with people like William Tyndall. William Tyndale, I wrote my article for our October newsletter about him. The man who gave his life to give us a Bible in English. We should remember him. And it's okay to name his name in church and say, God, in a prayer, in church, God, we thank you for William Tyndale and the things you did with him for us today. Because, because of him, because of how you used him, we can have a service in English and a Bible in English instead of Latin or whatever. Thank God. That's not taking anything away from the Lord. That's celebrating what the Lord has done. We can commemorate someone without making worship all about that person. So I just, I just think it's flat wrong to say it's too man-centered. Okay, now we come to the big one. It violates the, re the regulative principle. Reply to objection five. Is it really the case, is it really true that the Christian year and the liturgical calendar are unbiblical? Is that really true? Well, here's an argument from Scripture that it's not true, and we finally come to our text. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 15. It has three parts to it. Part, I got them labeled parts A, B, and C. Parts A and C, I'll read them for you. Nahum 1, 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Skip the next two lines where it says, For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, 
This verse parallels Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 and 7. The part where it says, Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. That parallels Isaiah 52, 1, where it says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Okay? So those two are parallel. And then the first part of Nahum 1.15 parallels verse 7 in Isaiah 52. Here's Nahum 1.15 again. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Here's Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Yeah, you hear the parallels. So they're about the same thing. And Paul, in Romans 10, 15, quotes that part of Isaiah 52, 7, slash Nahum 1, 15. He quotes that line, and he says, that verse is about Christian preachers. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Those are people who preach the Christian gospel, the gospel of Jesus. They're New Testament, New Covenant Christian preachers. So Paul thinks Nahum and Isaiah are talking about the proclamation of the Christian gospel in the New Covenant. This is about the age of Christ and the New Covenant church. And right in the middle of a verse that is fulfilled in the church by Christ, right in the middle of that, Nahum 1.15 says this, Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. Now, when Nahum said that, it was about the Jewish year. But the verse is about a fulfillment, a time of fulfillment in the Christian church. And so, this is the Jewish year reshaped around Christ and the gospel under the new covenant. The reformation of Jesus includes the liturgical calendar. That's my argument. That this is a verse that gets fulfilled in the New Testament. And in this verse that gets fulfilled in the New Testament, it says, keep your feasts. And those are just the Jewish liturgical festivals. Now, I don't know if that's convincing to you or not. But when we turn to the New Testament, we kind of see it happening. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Paul says, talking about, talking to the Corinthians about immorality in the church, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump 
as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now there's a sense in which we, we do that every time we have the Lord's Supper. And that's ultimately what he's driving at. Because if Christ is our Passover lamb, and every time we do the Lord's Supper, we're sort of reenacting Christ's sacrifice. So our Lord's Supper is, is a monthly little Passover. That's true. And this is about immorality in the church. That's true. I grant that. But he said, let us celebrate the festival. And it's just possible that what Paul is saying is, we're observing a specific time of year. We're keeping Passover as Christians, which would be Easter. That would be Easter. Paul also keeps the other, the second major Jewish festival. He does this in, at the end of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, verse 8. In 1 Corinthians 16, 8, Paul says... And he's, he's given, this is the end of the letter. He's given his travel plans. Ho-hum, we just kind of, okay, we're at the end of the letter. Nothing, nothing more exciting is going to happen here. And we miss a little detail. He says in verse 7, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul is in Ephesus, but he's keeping track of when Pentecost is. In other words, he's following the calendar. He knows when Pentecost is. That's just the Jewish Pentecost. Maybe. But why is he keeping track of it? Well, he's still Jewish. Yeah. Or he's following the Christian Reformed version of the calendar. And I think it seals the deal that that's what he's doing when we go to the book of Acts. Acts 20. In Acts 20, verse 16, we're told this. Luke is giving Paul's travel log. And he says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. That means Turkey, Asia Minor. So that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul wanted to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem. He didn't want to do it somewhere else. And in, So here we have two festivals, Passover and Pentecost, being fulfilled in the New Testament. And the last one, that Feast of Tabernacles, that's not practiced in the New Testament, but we're told in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 16, that in the age to come, all the nations will go to Jerusalem year after year to keep that festival. In the new heavens and new earth, after Christ is returned, the nations are going to keep that festival. You see, some people look at that chapter in Zechariah and they say, well... That is fulfilled, that, that, that's about the first coming of Christ, and we're in that fulfillment now. Well, then why aren't we keeping the feast? Well, okay, no, it's second coming. Then we're going to keep the feast. So the feast doesn't go away. 
right now, we are, we are observing Passover and Pentecost. We're observing Easter and Pentecost. And the Feast of Tabernacles coincides with our ordinary time. And so we don't observe that feast during ordinary time because we're looking forward to when Christ returns, we're going to celebrate it with him when he comes back. So I think this is my biblical argument for why it's not unbiblical to keep a liturgical calendar and to observe the Christian year. I think Nahum 115 implies it, and I think we see Paul doing it. So I think we have biblical examples of it happening. I don't think that means that we have to do it. I think it means we can do it. We're permitted to do it. So that if you don't, if one church doesn't do the Christian year, they're not sinning against God. That's fine. They don't have to. But we can. We can. We're permitted to do it. And I think there's good reasons to do it. The other thing I would say to this, and we'll finish with this, is that the argument assumes that the, the calendar, if we were going to do it, it would have to be an element of worship. Remember those three divisions in the regulative principle? The elements of worship, the forms of worship, and the uh, circumstances? The argument assumes that a Christian calendar would be the, an element of worship, which means we would have to have a direct command if we're going to do it. But I don't think it's an element of worship. I think it's a circumstance. I am free to decide to preach any passage I want, any Sunday I want. So, what if I, one year, decided, this year, in the four weeks leading up to Christmas, I'm going to preach four sermons about anticipating the coming of Christ. I can do that. And what if I decide, huh, that went really well last year, I'm going to do it again next year. And maybe I'll do it every year. Well, now it's a tradition, but it's a circumstance because we're free to do that any Sunday we want. I can pick any time on the calendar to preach a certain sermon. We can decide any time we want to follow a certain practice in the church as far as what we think about and what we pray about and the passages we read and things like that. So I think that there's a good reason to say the Christian year is biblically permissible. I don't think it's an element of worship. I think we're free to do it or free not to do it. I think it's beneficial for us to do it. We already do it to some extent. I would like to continue that. But I wanted to round out this series on worship by putting forward a case about a controversial issue in the Reformed Church. Should we or should we not have a Christian year and a liturgical calendar? I think that we can, and I think it's beneficial if we do. And these are my reasons for doing that. This is my case for the Christian year. Because I think think God has blessing for us if we follow it. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to open up your word and to, and to dig in into something that, that might seem a bit obscure or off to the side, but is a controversial issue in the church today. And we thank you that you have actually given us scripture that helps us guide our thoughts. Help us, Lord, to, to feel our connection and our camaraderie and our continuity with the wider church and the historical church that you've been building and growing and using and working in for 2,000 years. And I pray that as we think through how to observe the Christian year and how to practice it in our own lives and in the life of our church and the worship of our church, that you would help us uh, to focus on, on how to do it well and biblically and wisely and that you would protect us from the abuses and the dangers and pitfalls that come from, from that. And I do pray also, Lord, that you would give us the benefits and the blessings that come from observing these things 
as we walk through the life of the church and walk through the life of, uh, the life of Jesus and our lives and our worship becomes more and more gospel-shaped. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.